Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. A word of warning. This podcast explores graphic and disturbing stories and includes some strong language. It therefore may not be suitable for our young listeners or other folks who may find it disturbing. Hello, and welcome to True Crime Daily, the podcast covering high-profile and under-the-radar cases from across the country every week. I'm your host, Anna Garcia. Our cases this week are all about wives trying to kill their husbands or their ex-husband's new family. A scorned ex-wife allegedly tried to hire a hitman to take out her ex's new wife. Now, what she didn't know was that she was hiring an undercover cop posing as a hitman. Police say she even instructed the undercover officer to murder the victim's 13-year-old daughter if she got in the way. But first, a wife is accused of trying to poison her veterinarian husband by using euthanasia drugs from his practice. Police say she allegedly put the drugs in his coffee and that the attempts to kill him started shortly after they got married last March. Police say the motive? She wanted his house and the estate. What she for sure got was a divorce and an attempted murder charge. We are recording this on Thursday, January 12th of 2023. Our guest today is Robert Corbett. He's a Charlotte-based criminal defense attorney, a friend of the show, and a former prosecutor. Um, you were in the prosecutor's office for a long time, Robert, right? Uh, yes, and first off, thank you for having me back. And yes, I was a local prosecutor for approximately 11 and a half years. So I always I love like to tell people there's not a case I haven't prosecuted. There's not a criminal case I haven't defended. Well, how, how wonderful for us <laughs> that you're here today for these very strange cases. Um, there's definitely a theme in today's program. And a lot of accusations here. Obviously, everyone presumed innocent until proven otherwise. So um, let's get to our first case, which is out of Monroe, Wisconsin, where a woman is accused of poisoning a veterinarian, her husband, with animal euthanasia drugs. The suspect here is 50-year-old Amanda Chapin, and she is accused 
of attempted murder. Police say that she tried to kill her new husband, who is much older, 70-year-old veterinarian Dr. Gary Chapin. Amanda allegedly used drugs administered for euthanizing animals and then allegedly put it in Gary's morning coffee. We were talking right before we started, Robert, and you were saying, you know, cases like this can be pretty hard to prove. Well, um, exactly. Um, when you don't have a confession, you're looking at circumstantial evidence. And sometimes people may think circumstantial evidence is a, is a bad word, but the judges will typically instruct the jury that the jury can consider circumstantial evidence the exact same way they consider direct evidence. So direct evidence would be something that someone sees for themselves. Circumstantial evidence would be something that leads someone to a certain conclusion. The example that you know we typically say in court is if you didn't have any windows in the courtroom and when you came into the courtroom, it was sunny outside. But then when you went outside, you smell moisture in the air. You see people with umbrellas. You see water on the ground. Although you didn't see it rain, you know at some point it rained during the day. So that's circumstantial evidence. So they're looking at, we don't have, the police are saying, we may not have any direct evidence in terms of an eyewitness or a confession, but we're looking at that he is attempt, there was an attempt to be poisoned with these drugs that are probably from his practice. They have to see who has access to that. And that probably based on the amount he had in his system, they can probably say that he ingested the poison over a short period of time which coincides to when she became, when she married him and when she tried to have him do the form so that she could inherit the estate. Yeah, it's, for me with these, you know, we've covered a lot of these uh, poisoning cases and they're fascinating. And a lot of times there'll be some evidence that uh, the authorities will find. Um, But in this case, what's interesting is because the drugs allegedly used to poison him came appear to, to have come from his practice. And if they were the only two people in the house, it, it's still, I think, to a degree, a stretch to say, well, she absolutely did it. Like, how are you going to prove right. that? But then there are all these other things going on that really kind of raise some suspicion. So let, let's get into what was going on in their world. So Investigators say that the alleged murder attempt started shortly after the couple said, I do. Police say that she pressured her husband to put her name on the house deed. And the theory was, the discussion was, in case anything ever happened to him. Oh boy. Okay, and you know, she's 50, he's 70. I get that. The two married in March of 2022. Authorities allege that after their marriage, this is interesting to me, Robert, Amanda allegedly forged the signature of one of Gary's children, giving her power of attorney over him. Why is that so significant? Well, when you have power of attorney, that means that in the event that the person becomes incapacitated or for whatever reason, they can't carry on their affairs, that as the power of the ter- power of attorney, excuse me, you are the person who was authorized to make any type of financial decisions or legal decisions on behalf of that person. Um, But, you know, when you said in terms of that, it may be sort of a a difficult case, at least as it stands now from what what little we know for the prosecution, all of these things in terms of being power of attorney or having um, her husband sign or put her name on the deed to the house, those can be spun so that you looked at in terms of, well, she's the spouse, she's his new wife. 
um, it would make sense for the new wife, for the wife to have power of attorney over her elderly husband um, to be able to handle his affairs. It would make sense for the new wife to be listed as the person who may inherit the estate when she has an elderly person. So those things by itself, you know, can be thought of as suspicious, but it wouldn't rise to the level at this point to prove definitively that she has this plan in place, at least at that time. All right. Well, authorities allege that Amanda began poisoning Gary less than three weeks after the house deed was amended to include her. Police say she attempted to poison her husband, Gary, on three separate occasions between July and August of 2022. Gary reportedly told authorities that the poisonings, this is, this is how he figured it out, he believed would happen when the two of them would sit outside on a bench, how romantic, to have their morning coffee together. Now, let's think about this. Newlyweds, every morning, sitting on their little bench having coffee. We can all envision this, right? right. We can all envision this. Unless, of course, <laughs> that is the location and the time of the alleged poisonings. And then it's not quite romantic. It's more diabolical. <laughs> so... Let's take a look at, at, at what was going on. So he also said that it was Amanda that made the coffee every morning. Okay. All right. That's nothing criminal there. Right. Gary later told detectives that he suspected that Amanda had used a mortar and pestle, which of course makes sense. How are you going to mash things up to grind up animal medications before administering them in the coffee. So the first time that Gary was poisoned, he experienced vertigo symptoms and he later told the authorities he felt like he was underwater, you know? Um, and what's interesting is that of course, Gary went to the doctor because she was telling him that he was having a stroke, right? So Amanda is telling him you are having a stroke. Your speech is slurred. Well, I would think so. It's, pos it's certainly a possibility. And that, you know, she said his face was drooping. And the thing about Gary was, he said he for sure was frightened. He for sure was confused and worried. So I guess one incident alone, there's not much anyone can do with. Right. Unless it happens again. And then it happens again. And, and you're then, an otherwise healthy person. Yeah, so you have that, you know, in terms of for law enforcement. And because of my background, I look at cases for, for both sides or just as habit, I always look at them for, for, for both sides. So for the law enforcement's viewpoint, they can argue that Gary said that he was sick or experienced symptoms on this state. And they can probably have someone to say that those symptoms of vertigo could be a sign of ingesting those barbiturates in terms of a low level. But it'd be hard to say unless they did a blood test, which if they did a blood test, then they would have known he had just did barbiturates on that certain day. It's hard to be able to prove that that is what was going on on that day. Whereas for the last time where he was actually admitted to the hospital, then they can say on that occasion, 100% definitive, he ingested it on that date. But the other two times, I think I would probably say kind of falls in the realm of speculation as to what was occurring with him at that time. That's interesting. That's interesting. And I and would prosecutors and let's say the jury really need more than one 
attempt. You can make allegations and make suggestions that there were two prior attempts, which you cannot completely support with any evidence. But on the third one, the man's in the hospital for four days. Right. So I would, the jury wouldn't need um, to hear the other two attempts for the prosecution. It certainly bolsters their case. If it's, if you say fast forward, this does go to trial. It certainly would bolster their case to say like, aha, she tried on two other occasions. So this is why it's clearly, this is the woman who was responsible. But with that, I would, as I sit here now, I'd be skeptical if that would even be allowed to come in that he'd even be allowed to say she poisoned me on this earlier date when there is nothing to substantiate that outside of he has a feeling. Um, but there may be, there's always a way to kind of like argue to, to kind of get around that, be creative, but it'll be an uphill battle for them to get that in. Whereas the last one, they can 100% get that information in and have him testify to it. Well, after the first alleged incident, two weeks later, Amanda supposedly tried this again and then gary later told detectives that he experienced these similar symptoms this time less severe so after the first two poisonings in in gary's mind right um then with this hospitalization we're going to get into doctors reportedly found anti-seizure medication in gary's system and it is not a medicine that Gary was taking. So the third poisoning attempt was on August 21st of 2022. According to police, Gary went into a coma for four days. I mean, this was serious. Gary told authorities that the last thing he remembered, and I think this is probably when it all came together, he was having coffee with Amanda on the bench. Last recollection of anything. Next thing he knows, it's four days later, and he wakes up in the hospital. Yeah, and that one is the, the proverbial smoking gun, so to speak. So that one becomes clear in terms of, obviously, that something was going on. And then they can kind of, like, look back in terms of if he's seeing doctors over a relatively short period, over, like, a few weeks, um, experiencing similar-type symptoms, then they can say in terms of, we know he's poisoned on the third one and it shows or bears a strong possibility that he may have been a poison on occasion number one and number two as well. Here's something I find really interesting. The 911 call for Gary came in at 12.30 p.m., which is around lunchtime. But Gary told police the last thing he remembers is having morning coffee. So Gary believes that he was made to wait nearly three hours, meaning Gary believes the allegation is that Gary had passed out for three hours on the porch and that his wife did not call for help, that he was just left outside by the bench, which to me is, I mean, how are you going to explain that? And, and how, how do you explain the fact that his recollection is coffee and then three hours later? But I guess she could say, oh, he was fine. He was fine. He just took a nap. <laughs> yeah. So in terms of possible stories, and I was thinking that, that she said like he fell asleep or another possible thing is without being a toxicologist, not knowing the effects that that medication may have, is that a byproduct 
of ingesting that and going to a com coma that there is some memory loss or some time gap. Um, so I think that may be looked at uh, as well as a alternative as, as well as probably the other one of in terms of she thought the poison was working and was just waiting for him to slip away. And then when he came to realize, okay, well, this isn't the day. And then she called the hospital or he called, he was allowed to call the hospital. Yeah. It's very cruel actually. When you think about the fact that if it's true, and she denies all the allegations. She says she's innocent, she loved her husband, she would never poison him. But if the authorities are correct, and if Gary's suspicions are correct, that he was left there to die, and it just wasn't happening fast enough, or it didn't look like this was gonna work, that's so cruel. That is really cruel. And here's the other thing that police say. She allegedly forwarded a bunch of emails while in this span of time that no one can account for from the time of morning coffee to the time of 911 she forwarded emails from gary's computer gary's email i should say between gary his kids and his attorney and she forwarded all those emails to her email account that's in the complaint and that was certainly odd uh, i don't know off the top of my head in terms of what she would gain or what possibly she would gain or, or try to do with that in terms of just trying to get all the information or correspondence he has with various people in one location. It's possible. And, you know, she could argue she was just preparing, but it's it's preparing for what? I mean, if Gary's not well and is passed out, you need to call 911. And, you know, what what happened in this time span? I think the digital footprint there the forensics on that will be very interesting as far as timing and when 911 was called uh and i i think it's going to be i think the challenge is gary's recollection that the last thing i remember is having coffee but it is of course possible that something else could have happened he just doesn't remember depending on this this drug that was given to him. We right. just don't know. We just don't know. But I will say this is incredibly suspicious. All of this well, is very suspicious. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, so I certainly agree with that. So, you know, so, so we tell folks in terms of suspicion can be enough to rise to an arrest, but then the flip side that although it's suspicious, that doesn't necessarily mean that's enough to convict. Um, but there are going to be a lot of moving parts in this, just like in any, um, violent crime investigation. But the things you laid out in terms of when we mentioned circumstantial evidence, those will be the things that they look at in terms of sort of just gradually adding a piece at a time, sort of like a puzzle, until they can get the complete picture that she is the one responsible or she was the one who was trying to murder her husband. But it does seem suspicious for the time frame and the other things that were going on, which would cause someone to think that she's not being a, a dutiful, loving spouse that if your husband is passed out, that you would do more um, in terms of calling someone instead of forwarding emails. Well, Gary's children are very suspicious. They were concerned that Amanda could be behind all of this when the incident, the hospitalization happened, when the coma happened. It's like that, that was just like, whoa, this is really dangerous. And their suspicions were confirmed, they say, when Gary's blood tested positive for phenobarbital, an animal barbiturate, a drug which Gary had and used in his practice. So 
while everyone's trying to figure out what's going on and the criminal complaint isn't filed yet, a restraining order is filed against Amanda. So Gary's son was so worried for his father's safety that he got a restraining order against Amanda. So that's the first thing that the family did to protect Gary in this situation. Uh, I didn't realize that another individual can get a restraining order for someone else. It's, in my experience, that is rare outside of when you're dealing with minors. Um, But if we do the analogy of, at this point, dad is incapacitated, family has reason to believe that stepmom may be involved. It is a lower burden of proof for a restraining order. So for the criminal side, it's proof beyond a reasonable doubt. Um, For the restraining order, it's by a preponderance of the evidence. So a lot of times you just say it's just a slight tipping of the scale one way or another. So even though charges may not have been brought at that time for the restraining order, the son just has to say, dad's in a coma, dad was poisoned. The only person who had access to dad was stepmom. So we're asking for a restraining order and a restraining order is usually for a limited time anyway. So since it's a low burden of proof, I can see why that was granted. Well, Amanda allegedly violated the restraining order on September 1st when she sent a suicide note to Gary via email. In the email, she denied poisoning him. Amanda claimed that she was going to kill herself because Gary's children were going to, quote, destroy her. According to the complaint, she wrote, quote, the only thing I am guilty of is loving you so, with like a thousand O's, much. And of course, the right thing was done. Paramedics were called to make sure that Amanda was safe. And she was taken to the hospital and she survived the suicide attempt. And what does Gary do the next day? He files for divorce. Which is probably the smart thing under the circumstances. Yes, I I think so too. And when I see that in terms of, just jump in, with the note that was sent to Gary, and I see this so often that people don't quite realize this, but when there is a restraining order, it prohibits any type of communication whatsoever. And maybe I think sometimes people think that, well, I'm just sending a hello text or I'm just sending um, an email. I'm not harassing the person. I'm not threatening the person, but it says any communication whatsoever and any communication is a violation and could subject you to other penalties. So when it says no communication, that means no phone calls, no texts, no emails, no DMs, no contacting a third party to relay a message. You can't do anything. Well, it took a little while um, for authorities to investigate this case, and Amanda was charged with attempted first-degree intentional homicide on December 28th. On January 4th of this year, a judge set Amanda's bail at $10,000, and she was ordered not to leave the state or to contact Gary or anyone in his family. Amanda's preliminary hearing is scheduled for Today, the day of this recording, the charge of first degree intentional homicide carries a maximum sentence of 60 years behind bars. And Amanda's attorney says that all of these allegations are unproven. And the attorney says, quote, that Amanda is innocent and has the right 
to due process under the law, we will continue to assert her fundamental constitutional rights as they are the only protection a citizen has against the state. And that's absolutely a true statement. Um, but the thing that jumps out at me is that is an incredibly generous bond on an attempted first degree intentional homicide case. They have a bond of $10,000. Um, I, I know I would say I was thinking to some of my clients, I know plenty of my clients would love to have a, a bond that low. So when I hear that, or when I hear cases of where there is a relatively low bond, it kind of makes me think that there was information that shared at an initial hearing that maybe gave the judge pause to why the judge would consider a bond of that amount. Um, when we talk about the barbiturates, and we know that he has those same, Gary has those same barbiturates at his practice, I wonder in terms of, is there a system for him to know if certain amount of barbiturates were missing? Um, who has access to those barbiturates? I mean, does she have access to go in and would have been able to retrieve them? Does he keep them at home? And was there an argument made that other people had access um, to the home during that time period, like maybe even, you know, adult children or friends or, or co-workers. So a lot of things just makes me think of a lot of things that may have transpired to why a judge would give a bond that low in this, in a, such a serious case as this. Am I to interpret that, that you're suggesting that there may be something that the judge weighed that makes the judge think that the case has some weaknesses and it's just not absolutely clear? Well, certainly in terms of a judge is, when a judge is considering bond, they're looking at uh, flight risk, they're looking at the potential danger to the community, and they are also allowed to consider strength and weaknesses of the case. So assuming that Amanda has a clean record and assuming that she has ties to the community and hasn't missed court before, then the judge is also looking at the strength and weaknesses of this particular case. And I'm erring on the side of caution, thinking that for a judge to set a bond at 10,000, where if you get a bondsman, you're typically paying maybe seven to 10% of that, that the judge is probably, probably weighed in something that called into question that she may have been the one that did this. Okay. That's, just my, that's just what my gut's telling me. Our next case is out of Chadsford, Pennsylvania, where we have another wife accused of behaving very badly. In this case, police say that the woman tried to hire a hitman to kill her ex's new wife and her daughter, not to allegedly kill the ex-husband, but the husband's new family. I always find that very fascinating. I know we're going to get into this, Robert, but... So many of the times, the target of someone's vengeance in these situations when there are, you know, contentious divorces and hurt feelings, it's, it's often the person who harmed you, not, not the person who replaced you. <laughs> right. So that's a, that is a, a, a new one in terms of it's usually trying to hurt the ex-spouse. So is it that Allegedly, if she's responsible, even though this does seem like a, a stronger case than the last one, does she still have feelings for the ex-husband, so to speak? Or is it so Machiavellian that she thinks by harming the new spouse, this will harm the ex-husband even more? 
I do not know the answer to that one. We are talking here about 56-year-old Marilyn Cho. She faces charges of attempted murder and money laundering after unknowingly hiring an undercover agent to murder her ex-husband's new wife. Cho reportedly even instructed the officer to kill the woman's child if the 13-year-old was present when the murder took place or if the kid got in the way. Now, they have not said this, but my guess is all of this was recorded. <laughs> or uh, probably not only audio, but video, video. recorded as well in yeah. HD. And then like okay. we were saying like earlier, you see these cases so often that you would think people would know that you can't just go off and try to find a hitman on the street. I don't know if people think they're actually going on the dark web to, to find these things, but they, they never hardly ever turn out the way you think they're going to. It's always, mm -hmm. always suspect it's someone undercover. And even if it's not an undercover agent, it's someone that's going to report you to the police that you're trying to do this. Yeah, because likely that person is involved in other criminal activity. And if that person gets nabbed in another case and, and wants, <laughs> you know, the government off his or her back, they're going to roll over and they're going to tell them about you so they won't, you know, be charged with whatever it is they're facing. We see it all the time. And we know, we know that even if you go on the dark web, we know that there are police agencies posing, on, yeah. posing on there, specifically monitoring for the whole, you know, hiring a hit person thing constantly. Well, I mean, we have one of these cases every few months. It's, it's It always stuns me. And here's the other thing. If you're going to pay someone to do this, that means you're always going to have someone, right, who's no doesn't love you, isn't your best friend, isn't your cousin, isn't whatever. Always has something over you. Right. And I just like, that just doesn't make any sense. You really think these people are going to do it just for, you know, $20,000 and then be done with it? I, I don't get the logic. And I guess they assume that there's honor among thieves and... Once the job is completed, they'll they'll move on. But like you said earlier, in terms of someone trying to roll over, I tell clients, knowledge, information is currency. Um, and people will spend that currency if it can help them out of their current situation. So even totally. if it wasn't a police officer, it would be someone who could say, I have something over Maryland, and I'm going to exchange this to get me out of this current jam. I don't know what Maryland was thinking here. So... Marilyn lives in an upscale community, which is about 25 miles outside of Philadelphia. But the alleged meeting with the hitman took place in Trenton, New Jersey. In early December 2022, authorities with the Mercer County Prosecutor's Special Investigations Unit received a tip. Mm-hmm. So... They're not being that clear about that tip. Now, is that tip that, you know, something was going on online or the person that Marilyn allegedly spoke to first is like, oh, that's here we go. And here's my currency. <laughs> exchanging it to sell so he or she could get out of something. So, you know, the tip was pretty clear. Marilyn Cho is allegedly looking to hire a hitman. And so the investigation begins on December 18th. She met with an undercover officer who was posing as the hitman. So Marilyn arrives. She thinks she's about to do a deal. Police say otherwise. 
<laughs> they're like, no, no, this guy is not going to carry out this murder. According to the press release from the Mercer County Prosecutor's Office, Marilyn gave the undercover officer two color photographs to help identify the new wife. Okay. Always helpful. This next part is the part I really cannot figure out. And you, maybe you can help me here. Prosecutors allege that she even instructed the hitman officer to murder the victim's 13-year-old daughter if she was present when the hit took place. Like, why? Why well, would you? Why would you do that? And the, the the thing about that, and this is what I tend to see a, across the board when you're dealing with, with law enforcement, is how things are phrased in the initial complaint and how they're phrased in the complaint isn't necessarily how the conversation went. For instance, it could have gone exactly how they said it, that she said, hey, if the daughter is there, take her out. Or it could have gone that the question was, okay, you're hiring me to kill the ex-wife. And, and then the question is asked, and what happens if I see the daughter? And Marilyn may have gave a nonchalant answer or said something along the, hey, I don't care. Um, do whatever you have to do. This is what I'm hiring you for. But it gets written in such a way that Marilyn said, kill the ex-wife. And if the daughter's there, kill her as well. So that's where, when you mentioned the recordings, that's when that would be, that would come into play. Um, and that may go towards mitigation in some way, if they get to the point of talking plea negotiations, that her attorney will argue that she never said anything about trying to harm the minor child. That's not what she said in the recording. And that doesn't make her a good person because she still is, you know, trying to hire someone to kill the ex-wife. But, you know, there is something, sometimes all you, you're just grasping at whatever you can when you're the defense attorney. So if that's all they have and say that, yes, she tried to kill the ex-wife, but had nothing whatsoever and did not authorize anything regarding the child, that'd be something that they could argue. This is also very bizarre to me. Prosecutors say that Marilyn was extra helpful, that she gave the undercover officer, remember the hitman, rubber gloves and a towel to use in the murder. So As was- if... As if this cannot be purchased at any CVS or Target or anywhere, or probably even found in most people's cars. Right. So those, once again, those things would go on in terms of as they are building the case as to why she is intentional and wanting this to happen, because they're saying she is providing us with um, those items that we would use to conceal the crime, conceal our identity or clean up the crime. Oh, that just seems so weak to me, right? It's like, really? Gloves and a towel? (laughs) All about those little building blocks to to further build a case against her. Uh, That to me is like the weak. It's the most interesting in the sense that it's intriguing because I can't figure it out. But uh, okay, maybe they've left out some details. Maybe there was something in the towel. I don't know. Very odd. So Marilyn allegedly paid the undercover officer $21,000 in cash and made a promise to pay another $20,000 after the hit took place. And that's the part that's going to to get her, or that's what makes it the most difficult for the defense. Because when you have these attempt crimes, it's the law says it has to go beyond mere preparation. 
So it's harder for her to argue, uh, okay, sure. I talked to somebody, I was upset, but hey, I wasn't gonna go through with this. Um, you know, I told them who the people were, but I knew the end of the day, I wasn't gonna go through with it. But then when you say that, not only did she pay the money, relatively speaking, she paid a substantial amount of money. It makes that argument harder to make. Right, that money, that's, that's when the deal goes down, right? That's when it's serious. That's when there's what appears to be serious intention. Right, so that's why I can see if we're like comparing and contrasting the two cases we've discussed, of the two, this is the harder road for the defense. And this would be the one if where the defense will probably be pushing to resolve this so that it doesn't have to go to trial. Interesting, interesting. So moments after this exchange and meeting, Marilyn gets arrested and is taken into custody. Pennsylvania State Police then search Marilyn's residence that evening with the assistance of the county prosecutor's Investigators from New Jersey, detectives allegedly seized $18,000 along with other items that Marilyn had advised the undercover agent to use in the execution of the murder. We do not know the details of what those items may be. So maybe that would explain the whole towel situation. And then if I could go back, because this like popped in my, my head. Once again, this type of case will come down to those recordings because the only other um, evidence, excuse me, um, defense you can have in this type of case is like, well, one, you're saying, well, look, I didn't do it. I didn't mean, or I didn't mean for it to go to happen. And your other one is entrapment of where you're saying, but for this undercover agent contacting me and talking me up about it. I wouldn't have seriously gone through with this. And this is where we said those recordings are going to come into play because we have the, we're assuming that the tip comes in from someone she talked to. So our argument could be that, yeah, I, I talked to this person, but it was just talk. But then the undercover agent contacted me and then they started talking it up and convinced me that, yeah, I can go ahead and do this and to trust them. Um, but that's only in terms of without looking at it or seeing all of the evidence those are the only kind of defenses I can see sort of jumping out off the top of my head. Marilyn Cho has been charged with two counts of attempted first degree murder and one count of third degree money laundering. Prosecutors have filed a motion to keep her detained pending trial. Again, radically different from the first case. First case, $10,000 bond, right? You're out of here. And, and in that one, the, the man was in a hospital for four days, you know, oh. allegedly because he had been poisoned. And in this case, you're not going anywhere, lady. And then that's where when we were saying in terms of if a judge, well, first of all, we have different judges, different jurisdictions. So that always comes into play. But if we're looking at if the judges are considering strength and weaknesses of a particular case, Maryland's case appears to be stronger when you probably have video and audio of Marilyn talking about, I want to kill this person and video of Marilyn exchanging money so that that crime could be committed. Oh boy, oh boy. Well, there you go. Two fascinating cases with a lot of similarities and different strengths and weaknesses in each case. It is time for our comments section, and our producer, Will Updike, is here with all the crime cases y'all are talking about on social media. Hey, Will. Hey, Anna. How's it going? Good. 
good. <laughs> hey, Robert, good to see you. How you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you. Hope you're doing well as well. Yeah, absolutely. So we have an interesting one this week. Uh, a man's alleged armed robbery ended in a fumble after the man reportedly walked into a convenience store and stole some items. This one comes out of Ponca City, Oklahoma, where according to police on December 4th at around 5 a.m., a man walked into a local stop and go carrying a small revolver. He reportedly robbed the store at gunpoint, but he did so wearing a face mask in the shape of a football. I'm going to go ahead and put the like the security footage up for people. It's basically what you can imagine. Huge football on this guy's head. He looks like maybe some sort of deranged mascot. Very unclear. <laughs> uh, but, <laughs> but this actually like this case took a while for, for police to put it together and unfold. So uh, about a month later on January 3rd, the Ponca City police department went to a local storage unit where they found a man and a woman inside and when police got there the man who they later identified as jared dustin smith he hid from officers and they said that the woman remained uncooperative so they eventually locate this guy the hiding didn't go that well not sure if he was wearing the football mask when when he was trying to hide but he was arrested on several outstanding warrants and he re he reportedly confessed to robbing this stop and go while wearing the football mask but he did say that he did it so he and his girlfriend could pay for this storage shed that they were apparently living in. So he was booked in the Ponca City Jail on charges of obstructing an officer, bringing contraband into a jail, and first-degree robbery, along with these other outstanding warrants. But the picture from the security footage is very insane. Uh, we got a lot of comments on this one. The average guy said the birth of the first supervillain, the ball head which I don't know if this could be someone's like Joker origin story, uh, but it, it, it sure seems it, it sure seems uh, like a rough start. We got a lot of comparisons to cartoon characters, obviously with the football shaped head. We got a lot of Stewie Griffins from Family Guy. My favorite. Yes. Was, uh, you <laughs> yes. know, yes. Yes. <laughs> Stewie. <laughs> uh, my favorite were actually all the Hey Arnold references uh, as I'm a 90s kid. Uh, um, so Mario V said, this is what became of Arnold. Hard times, man. Uh, which, if you're unfamiliar, at the opening of every episode of Hey Arnold, there would be like this big intro, and then Helga Pataki would yell at the main character and say, "Hey, move it, football head." Which I'm, it's unclear if the police said that when they were putting this guy in the vehicle, uh, but it would be a great moment if they did. Uh, John M said, "Why do I need? Why do I feel the need to tackle that guy before he makes it into the end zone?" Uh, great, uh, big football there. Uh, B said, I can confirm the disguise worked. I have no idea who that is. <laughs> I mean, I, I wonder how this would have unfolded if they didn't get the confession, if he didn't have these several sort of outstanding warrants. It, it seems right. like they, they might not have been able to put these pieces together. Uh, Ray Matee had my favorite comment. They said, that was a ballsy move, which mm. <laughs> decent, mm -hmm. decent pun. We love mm -hmm. a good pun here. We um, do. Yeah, we um, we want to thank everybody for subscribing to the channel. We've reached our 5 million subscribers. We're working on ways to to feature more of our, our viewers and uh, commenters here on the show. So more on that as it unfolds. But that is going to do it for today's. Oh, don't go anywhere, section. Will. You cannot oh, go anywhere. I'm not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There is. But wait, there's more. <laughs> but wait, there's more. Okay, so about that, I think I mentioned in the last podcast or a, a few back that we we're going to have a meeting with the executives to go over this while Will and I are like plotting behind the scenes. <laughs> so we, we've come up with a few things. So we are, we are, don't be surprised. You know, we all know who, 
who out there, especially on YouTube, has been with us for a long time, our loyal family, you know, members of this crime family. So if Will starts reaching out to you, <laughs> it's Don't for real. Don't be alarmed. Don't, Don't be, be alarmed. alarmed. Don't be scared. Don't call the police. <laughs> <laughs> Um, we're going to be making contact <laughs> while we figure out a few other things, uh, because we, we do, we really want you to be more of a, a part of this because you're also vocal. Uh, and we just think it'd be even more fun if you were vocal on the podcast. So don't be surprised if Will reaches out. And then the other thing, because I have you here, Will, and I'm not going to let you go is in order to celebrate all of this, um, we're talking about, you know, Will, you read these comments all the time because you'll know when he puts that cute. What is that? It looks like a record player. What's that symbol that you put next to comments? Um, what What is that little? It's like a little logo. I always say it looks like a record, but what is that? Do you, Just the you, little heart. I, I always use the hearts. Oh, there's something that's that says it's like an officially sanctioned comment that that uh, True Crime Daily has. You know, it's got. Oh, it's like yeah, a, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that thing what is that yeah thing? It, it, it it it'll verify so you know that it's so you know that it's me there okay. are there are surprisingly a couple imposter accounts out there so don't <gasps> be fooled oh okay all right so be mindful of all that so we're still figuring all this out um but one of the things that that you all talk about all the time your comments is like you'll say oh okay here's the podcast i'm having coffee or i'm starting my run or or anything like that so we thought it'd be so much fun if you all could share maybe more of that with us um we're trying to figure out maybe you can email us um how or where just a little description and, and we're going to start it off um, you can, what's the best way to tag us? Do you think? Yeah. So you can either tag us on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter. If you have a picture or a video of you, like where you listen to true crime daily, the podcast, how you listen, we'd love to know, we'd love to feature you on the show. Uh, so yeah, for right now we can, uh, go ahead and just set, just, uh, tag us on, on Instagram or Twitter on Facebook. Uh, and we will be getting, uh, like an email, either an upload thing online or an email set up. Uh, where you can additionally send those if you don't have social media or if you just don't want to do it that way. Yeah, and obviously it's because we have to get permission for all of this. <laughs> Will and I are just being renegades <laughs> and going with it while they're all figuring out everything in meetings. <laughs> um, so we want to start it off. Here's a photo. I love this photo. Um, it was sent to me by a friend of mine. He's also a hairstylist. He used to be the hairstylist at NBC. That's how we met. Um, and this picture was taken by Eric Velasco, who goes by Busy Little Queen on social media. Okay, we're putting this up for you. And for those of you who are listening, here's why I love this photo. So it's a photo of Eric's salon chair and stand. And there's a woman with foil in her hair. There are hair extensions all over the table. There are iced coffee. Um, it's like chaos. And then in the middle of all this is a little phone, you know, his iPhone, and he's playing our podcast last week's with um, Josh Ritter was was the guest. And so we want to thank him for sending that to us. We love it. And that's what, what we're talking about. We just want to share these moments with everyone. So tag us, figure something out. We'll all, it, it all works itself out somehow. <laughs> okay, now Absolutely. you may go, Will. <laughs> <laughs> all right, I'll see you all next week. I didn't want to get in trouble myself, so I'm pulling Will into this, <laughs> into the chaos that we are creating here. Um, 
Robert, we've got a few programming notes we just wanted to share with everyone. It's about two cases um, that everyone's pretty much been following. So Friday night, January 13th, the night that this podcast releases, I'll be doing some analysis on the Idaho college murders. You know that there has been an arrest in the case. And um, there's just, there's so, some things have been answered for people, but there's still so many questions left unanswered. And so family members are going to be on ABC's 2020 uh, on Friday night, um, explaining a lot about what was going on in the last few hours of everyone's life. And friends will be on the podcast, excuse me, on on 2020. And I'll be doing some commentary. Here's a, a clip of the program. It was so terrifying. Four college students found dead near the University of Idaho. Victims of a targeted attack. One of the victims is my very best friend. We were all just shocked. The entire world is watching. There's a killer loose. They're scared. I was able to get a pretty good timeline on Kaylee and Maddie the night of, shortly before 3 a.m. With the lack of information coming from police, internet sleuths decided that they were going to solve this crime. DNA analysis was really the tipping point in this case. That's when all the pieces about this suspect started coming together. And the race was on. I think Brian believes that he'll be exonerated. I don't think anybody was ready for what he said next. Horror in Idaho. The student murders. New reporting. New interviews. What you haven't heard. Did Kaylee ever talk to you about a potential stalker? She did. She did. The breaking new 2020 special, Friday night at 9 Central on ABC. So that's ABC's 2020 starting at 9 p.m. on Friday. You can also stream it on Hulu. Then on Saturday, January 14th, Lifetime has made a movie based on the Nancy Brophy case. This is a case we've covered on the podcast numerous times. Robert, this is the case of the woman who wrote a story called How to Murder Your Husband, and then she gets charged with murdering her husband, and then she's convicted. It's like an insane case that we have covered. And it's like, we say this a lot uh, on the program. This should be a Lifetime movie. (laughs) And in this case... It really is. It really is. And you say that a lot, too. Well, that as well as if people would not you know, tell people how to be better criminals, but if people would keep quiet and not write stuff down or put it on social media, um, it would make the defense's attorney, the defense attorney's job a little bit easier. But for her to write a book called How to Kill Your Husband and then to get charged for killing her husband and then I've seen the commercials and then they use that um, against her. Uh, was not the smartest thing to do. No, and she wrote insurance policies on the side because obviously her self-published books were really not making any money. It was costing them money and they had financial problems. So she wrote policies. The man had more than 10 insurance policies on him, okay? And he's he was a, a, a chef, an instructor. He worked at the local culinary school and he was killed in his classroom kitchen. So um, what is fascinating we're going to show you a clip here of the movie because they have Sybil Shepherd playing Nancy and Steve Gutenberg playing Dan the chef here's a clip hey management another bathroom stop just wanted to stop by are you okay 
Why wouldn't I be? Okay. No reason, just... Seriously, Nancy, something happened? Don't worry about me, Daniel. You got a lot to do. Don't want to do it. And then it comes. The moment when she solves her problem. Or doesn't. The point of no return. And then right after the movie on Lifetime, you can see my analysis of the real case on a special episode of Beyond the Headlines. Here's a clip. Three days after Dan is murdered, the man's body is barely cold and Nancy calls the police and says, can you please give me a letter of exoneration that I am not under suspicion or a suspect in this murder case so I can collect on an insurance policy. She neglected to tell the police that Dan had something like 10 life insurance policies out there totaling almost $1.4 million. So that's How to Murder Your Husband. The Nancy Brophy story premieres this Saturday on Lifetime at 8 p.m. And Robert, the one thing about those two cases, they have something very similar in both of them. Police were able to use surveillance cameras, traffic and security cameras in the area of a car. In each case, a car was identified early because the incidents took place at a time in which there was no traffic, you know. And so I find that obviously in the Idaho murders case, that case is, these are just charges. Um, the, the suspect says that he did not do this and he's going to defend himself in the Nancy Brophy case. She's been convicted. But in each case, the allegations are that the killer drove their own car, which made it easier to identify and work the case. And then when you have so many traffic cameras now, you're seeing that more often in trials in terms of they can show all the twists and turns, where the car traveled from point A, where it went to point B to the crime scene, where it went afterwards. So that type of evidence is being used more and more. Yeah, it's fascinating, fascinating. So obviously we always like to update everyone on what's going on and, you know, what crazy cases become movies. So we'll always keep you updated on that stuff. Robert, where can people find you if they want to follow you, see what you're up to? Yeah, certainly. I can be found on Instagram and Twitter at the same handle. So that's Robert K. Corbett, C-O-R-B-E-T-T. ESQ, like every other defense attorney out there, I put ESQ after my last name. We love the ESQ. You paid a lot of money to get the ESQ and you worked hard for it. You paid a lot, still paying a lot, still working hard. There you go. There you go. You can find me at Anna G News um, everywhere, Anna with one N. Um, you can get this episode, all our episodes, wherever you get your podcast. Subscribe to our YouTube channel, become part of the 5 million rich family that we have. Sign up to receive our newsletter at truecrimedaily.com. And until next week, I'm your host, Anna Garcia. And as we always say, 